Thank you. If you have your Bibles, please turn in the New Testament to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 still. We're going to be hopefully uh, finishing that up today. In reading at uh, verse 17 in reference to Christ, Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, And he, that is Jesus Christ, is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this section of your word. We ask you, Lord, to quicken our understanding, open our hearts and minds to your word by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would open your word to our hearts and minds so that we might understand it and comprehend it and believe it. And by your grace, act accordingly, believe what it says and have it change our lives. Lord, we give you all the glory. We know you alone are able to do this for us. And so we ask you to work within us this day. And, we, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, we started at verse 17, but if we go back a little bit, Paul has mentioned in verse 13 the act of grace that God did for the Colossians in bringing them out of darkness. This was a Gentile church, uh, Colossae. It was uh, in today what we call Asia Minor, and they were of Greek culture and religion for the most part. There were some Jews among them. But for the most part, the people that made up the Colossian church were Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. 
And the gospel had come to them, and it came with power like it did in Thessalonica, where Paul said it had transformed their lives. And he says in verse uh, 13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed or transferred or even uh, translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, that is our Lord Jesus Christ. So God graciously delivered them out of darkness and brought them into the kingdom of Christ. And notice, he's not saying that he will someday convey us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. He's saying he's done that now. Christ's kingdom is established. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he reigns over the nations. All authority has been given unto him in heaven and in earth, as we read in Matthew chapter 28. I believe that's verse 18. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So he lets us know this is how this came about. It's not because you know, Colossians, and we, by extension, can speak of ourselves in this regard. It's not because they were so insightful or had gained such you know, great uh, elevations of wisdom. It was because Christ had died for their sins. He says, in whom, that is in Jesus Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have redemption, and that means to be saved, um, to be bought out from underneath the, the condemnation of our sins, the guilt that we had earned by our wickedness. We have redemption through his blood. Christ stepped in between us and God's wrath. And then, again, as I mentioned last week, in case you weren't sure, well, what does that mean? It means the forgiveness of sins. It, mean God, God, it means God does not deal with us according to our righteousness. He deals with us according to what Christ did for us. Through Jesus, because of his precious blood, through his blood, meaning his sufferings on the cross, <coughs> we have the forgiveness of our sins. As a Christian, you are forgiven. You belong to God. He will not deal with you according to your success in keeping his law. As I've said before, he deals with you according to the success of Jesus Christ keeping his law. And the Lord Jesus kept it perfectly. Now, he talks about Jesus, this typical of Paul. Whenever he mentions anything Jesus did, he then goes off and talks about Jesus because he's in love with the Lord, as we ought to be. When he mentions Christ, he reminds them, it wasn't a mere creature that died for you. It was God incarnate. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. To see him is to see God, is what he's saying. The firstborn over all creation. Again, as we've said last week, it doesn't mean he's the first creature. It means he holds the place of preeminence, as Paul says in verse 18, that in all things he may have the preeminence. He has that position of the firstborn, the right of inheritance. He is the firstborn over all creation. All things were made through him, by him. And so, uh, as we read this, we learn about who Jesus is. He's the uh, firstborn over all creation. Then he tells us why, and notice... He describes Jesus not as a creature, but as the one who created. For by him all things were created. That takes him out of the realm of being a creature, doesn't it, as to his person. That are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. You know, it's always fascinating to me when you think of all the scientific discoveries that we've made. It goes back, you know, centuries, millennia. And we find, well, they figured out, you know, not completely, but, you know, gravity. They figured out the way, uh, uh, Nick, you're into music, you know, the vibrations of strings. That's a mathematical principle that was figured out by the Greeks, that uh, you tune them a certain way, you stop them a certain, certain length. Uh, they change 
tune. They change uh, the vibration, the frequency. All these things were there. It's interesting. You know, if you go to the Sundial Bridge, <laughs> sometimes I've been there with some, some of the kids in the church, and the, the cables that go up, the, the various lengths, if you've never done it, if you've got a ring on or something, hit, the, hit one of those cables and then put your ear on it. And as you go up, the frequency changes on each one. It's, it's kind of interesting. It sounds like a space gun going off or something when you first hear it. Um, it's a pleasant sound. All the physics, all the principles, we figure these things out. But God made those things. There's no ignorance in God. You know, um, I know some of you, you know, engineers and others, are, you know, and, and who've studied math, you love mathematics. And, you know, we have various types, you know, basic math, and you have, you know, trigonometry, and then you have uh, calculus and uh, various things, all, all the types of things. Who knows in the future what different types of mathematics will be yet discovered as, as God opens up more and more knowledge to us. But it's not a surprise to him, okay? When you think of all the miracles and wonders and the various things that we don't understand, Jesus knows all those things because he created them. God's knowledge is infinite. And there's a word, I've talked about this before, there's a word that baffles us at times. We don't know really what that word means. We get an idea. We think in terms of think something that's finite, and then we knock the end out. Well, that's infinite. It's probably something quite different, okay? You know, God created an in infinity, which is outer space in the creation, um, but it's a creation. The uncreated infinity created an infinity, and all the various things going on. So when we think, speak of the Lord Jesus Christ as our creator, and the reason why I mention this, this is the one that took a, a human nature to himself, became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, was born, a true man and true God joined together in his one eternal person. That's the one who is your savior. So if you're wondering like, oh, I don't know if the Lord can help me, you need to get those thoughts out of your head. He can help you. The problem's never with him. The problem's with our reluctance to go to him for help. Christ is a savior. He is before all things. He created the visible and the invisible. Now we know the Bible speaks of the fallen angels and you know, their sin in the world. There's sin in the invisible realm also. Okay? Uh, Christ is sovereign Lord over all those things, and he is our Savior. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So our present possession, as Paul says in verse 14, in him we have redemption. He doesn't say we're going to have it someday. We presently are in possession of redemption. That's another word for salvation, being redeemed when a price is paid. That's what that means. Christ has redeemed us. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul is talking to them about the present possession of eternal life and forgiveness. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 11, Paul says, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't that he looked down and saw you were going to make a decision or that he saw how worthy you were. He saw you were a sinner and, and could do nothing. You were dead in trespasses and sins. God commends his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood. That means put into a right relationship with God through the death of Jesus Christ, the shedding of his blood and his sufferings on the cross. We shall be saved from wrath through him. So he's saying the, the future is covered. He's not saying you're not saved now. He's saying the future shouldn't terrify you. You're in Christ. 
For if when we were enemies we were reconciled, now he's talking past tense, if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, that's an ongoing condition right now, we shall be saved by his life. So Paul's saying past, present, and future, we're saved if we're trusting in Christ, if we're in him. And not only so, but we also joy in God. That's the present tense right now. It doesn't say we're going to someday. We should be rejoicing in God. Okay? We also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement or the reconciliation. I love that word atonement. It actually, when I first heard the uh, etymology of it, I thought, oh, that sounds like somebody's doctored that up. They said, it, oh, it comes from at one And I thought, no, nah, probably not. I looked it up, that's exactly where it comes from, at one uh, It's a, an older word, kind of Middle English. And it means to be at one with God. God is reconciled to you through the death of his son. So as the inspired apostle Paul speaks of the glorious wonders of our Savior's effectual and powerful work of redemption and reconciliation, he then is led, as I say, to glory in the wonders of Christ's person and his exaltation to the place of preeminence over all things. As we see this, Christ is indeed exalted. He is the Son of God. He is the one that revealed the Father. He's the eternal Son of God. This is, it says there in verse 15 um, that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's the eternal Son of God, and he's the perfect reflection of all that God is, including his eternal being, his aseity, which means his self-existence, everything that is in the Father has been communicated to the Son, with the exception of the Father's person, okay? But as to the essence of deity, Christ has eternally been one with the Father. He's everything that God is, having the entirety, as I said, of the divine essence communicated to him. As verse 19 declares, note, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And so Christ is the revealer of God. He is the Savior. It says in verse 18 that he is the head of the body, the church. Now this gets down to the practical aspect. In the Colossian church, the assembly, the word the church there is the Greek word ekklesia, which means a called out assembly. Christ is the head of that body, whether you're speaking locally or the body as all the people of God on earth and in heaven. Christ is the head who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is risen. He is actually in time the firstborn. But he's talking here of the resurrection of Christ, it really being the beginning of the new creation. Christ is raised never to die again. Other people in Scripture were raised up, but they eventually grew old and died. Uh, Christ is raised never to die again, that in all things he may have the preeminence. But it's very important that we understand this, that he's the head of the church. This is important because of the papal claims that were made during the Middle Ages and are presently upheld in the dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church where they say that Christ is the head of the church in heaven but we need a head of the church on earth and so we need the Pope and then they have all their twisted oh, twistings of scripture to try to say that's Peter and then they twist even farther saying that's the successor in, in the city of Rome the Bishop of Rome these claims weren't original by the way these things didn't it took centuries for these things these blasphemous claims to begin to be asserted and they were opposed at every step of the way. Anyone, if you want to read church history, and nowadays you can Google most of this stuff, you'll find that the resistance of the papal claims just uh, have never gone unchallenged by those who read their Bibles. Um, and he was called Antichrist early on. 
There's no need for another head of the church on earth because Christ, through the ongoing presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit, is ruling, guiding, protecting, and feeding the church until he returns again in glory on the last day. Christ is the head of his church on earth. He rules by his providence, his spirit, and he is in control of all things. So the Pope is really unneeded, unnecessary. The church is not a two-headed body, as Rome would have us believe. As the Westminster Confession says in yeah, chapter 25, section 6, and they, if you want to look that up, the scripture proofs are there. They said, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. And then they go on and say, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God? They lived in a time when the blood of the martyrs was still fresh on the ground. And it was not uncommon for uh, men to have either had family members or known people who had died because they wouldn't acknowledge the Pope's authority. Today, you know, we look at the Pope as kind of a nice old guy that a bit of a liberal, but that's about it. But he's, they still uphold all the claims that they've made. They've never backed away from any of that, and they do teach you must be in submission to him. John the Apostle wrote in 3 John, and he says in verse 9 and 10, kind of we get a picture of, well, what exactly do we when we say Antichrist? What are we talking about? You know, well, it's one who denies the headship, the true headship of Jesus Christ. John wrote, he said, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, there was a guy in the church named Diotrephes, and he claimed he was the head of the church. He was the, the guy that everybody had to kind of bow down to. He loved to have the preeminence. He loves, loves, loveth, that means loves presently, to have the preeminence among them. He said he receives us not. Diotrephes wouldn't receive the writings of John the Apostle whether it was an epistle or his gospel or the book of Revelation, uh, we're not told, but John had written to the church. So John says, Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he do doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. If you look at all the excommunications and the anathemas of the Council of Trent, Anyone that doesn't agree with the, the blasphemous claims of the Church of Rome, they pronounce them to be damned by, by God. That's what anathema means, damned and on their way to hell. And that's what they say. If you don't believe that Mary is you know, the co-redemptrix, if you don't believe that the Mass is really truly the body and blood of Jesus, if you don't believe the Pope is the head of the Church and you must be in submission to him, then you are anathema. And that's, they've never rescinded that. With all the nice ecumenical talk in areas that are predominantly Protestant, they're very ecumenical in those areas. You go to a Roman Catholic country, they'll accuse you of trying to cause trouble uh, if you're spreading the gospel. Things are a little better now, but we still need to preach the gospel because Rome's gospel is not a saving gospel. They teach you're saved by works, you're saved by the merits of the saints, you should pray to the spirits of the dead. They've got all these rituals and everything else, and it's really sad. Diotrephes was a picture of the Antichrist. John said also in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, he said, Little children, it is the last time, and as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, 
whereby we know that it is the last time. John knew there would eventually rise up within the church, as Paul said, he sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. And then the Pope sits in the chair of supposedly of St. Peter and speaks ex cathedra. They say that is the voice of God. It's exactly what Paul warned about in 2 Thessalonians. But here he says, John says, there's many antichrists. There's a lot of little, you know, we might say little Hitlers kind of like running around out there. Anytime someone tries to take the place of Jesus Christ, whether in the church or in their own individual lives or in the lives of others, and they don't allow those individuals to come to faith in Christ and to trust him and obey his word for themselves, you're dealing with the spirit of antichrist. An antichrist is one who seeks to take the place of Christ. In uh, Gingrich's shorter lexicon of the Greek New Testament, and all the other lexicons I own agree with this, they do agree with this completely. The word anti, you know, antichrist, A-N-T-I in, in Greek, it means instead of or in place of. It's not always that the idea of opposition, it's one trying to take the place of Christ. And that's why it's important to remember, your conscience must be in submission to Jesus Christ. You know, the session of the church, we must be in submission to the word of God. And that's how Christ governs us. As a pastor, I have to preach the word of God. Your conscience needs to be bound, like Luther said of his own conscience, to the scriptures. And if someone says you need to do something, or if they say you're doing something wrong because they don't like it, but it's not against Scripture, then you need to say, you know what, I'm going to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his word and make your conscience subject to the word of God. Now, as a pastor, my job is to help you know what the Bible says, okay, and for myself first. But no session or synod or council, whatever it is, of, of church can make decrees contrary to the word of God. And that's so important. Traditions of men, cultural things, everything has to be brought to Scripture. Paul spoke, speaks of leading every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so it's important to recognize Christ is the head of the church, and we shouldn't allow anything or anyone to have dominion over our conscience except the Lord Jesus Christ by his word. And we need to make sure we recognize what the spirit of antichrist is. And as I say, as John warned, there are many antichrists in the world today. So we uh, need to make sure that we encourage our brothers and sisters to do what the Bible says, do what scripture says, obey Jesus. Now, in Hebrews chapter 7 at verse 21, the writer to the Hebrews says, for those, those priests, he's talking about the priest in the tabernacle, how when the high priest died, they had to replace him. Okay, you, you had to have a replacement because the priest you'd known, the high priest, he's dead now, so you had to replace him. And he's contrasting that with what we have in the church. And when you hear, read this section of scripture, and many Roman Catholics have come out of the church of Rome from this passage of scripture. Because it really is saying you don't need a replacement for Jesus because he's not dead, he's alive. But listen to what it says. Hebrews 7, beginning at verse 21. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath, referring to Christ when God said you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which is what he quotes. Uh, he was with an oath uh, by him that said unto him, that is the, the father said to the son, the Lord swore and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Not a Levitical priesthood, but a different order. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament or covenant. And truly they were many priests, that is historically, 
because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. They had to have a replacement. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Now that word unchangeable in Greek is aparabaton, okay? Aparabaton, all right? And it means um, unchangeable, permanent, perpetual, non-transferable. That starts with the letter A. That's called A privative in grammar in Greek too. It means it's a negation. Uh, parabaton means to transfer something. A parabaton means non-transferable. Christ has a non-transferable priesthood. Why? Because he's alive. He doesn't need a replacement. Okay. So when they say, "Well, the Pope is the head of the Church. The Church must have a head," it's like, "Yeah, and it does. His name is Jesus Christ, and he's alive. He does not need a replacement." So we see the usurpations, really they come from Satan in setting this whole false system up. Um, they lead to destruction. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And that's a good description of Romanism. The writer of the Hebrews concludes and says, uh, Wherefore he is able also, he, Jesus, is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Christ isn't dead. He's alive. He's at the Father's right hand now interceding for us. So he's able to save to the uttermost those who come unto God by him. His priesthood does not pass from one to another. In the margin of the King James, that's exactly what it says. They have a note where it says unchangeable. And then they say, um, from based on the Greek, which uh, his priesthood, where it says unchangeable in the text, which passeth not from one to another. In other words, Christ hasn't transferred his uh, headship to some other, and someone says, well, the Pope doesn't claim that. Beloved, the term Pontifex Maximus, that's the Latin title of the Bishop of Rome that he took to himself. Pontifex means high priest. Maximus is a superlative. It means the most high priest. Okay, so well, I'm not making this stuff up. Okay, by the way, you know who used to have the title Pontifex Maximus in the Roman Empire? The emperor. You could start any religion you wanted to as long as you said that the highest priest in your new religion, whatever Gnostic Aryan cult it was, as long as you said the emperor is Pontifex Maximus, you were religio licita, you were a legal religion, you could practice it. Christians wouldn't do that. That's why they were not put to death for being Christians. They were put to death on the charge of treason because they wouldn't acknowledge the emperor's authority. And if you go to the Middle Ages, that's exactly what was happening to the Waldensians and others who stood up against the uh, lies of Rome. They were put to death as tra traitors to the Holy Roman Empire and apostates. Matthew Poole says, a priesthood that cannot pass from him to any uh, other, as Aaron's did to his successors, no person is to be a sharer in it, nor a successor to it. It is reciprocal with himself, meaning it comes back to Jesus. His individual person terminateth, means brings to an end, that transferring idea, terminateth it forever. He hath no vicars, vicar means representative, a replacement, nor successors of his priesthood, whatever the Pope pretends to it, Matthew Poole wrote, and he wrote that, that was in the late 1600s. It goes no further than himself. There's no need of a successor because he is alive and present in his church. Christ is the head of the church. So 
if we're in Christ as individuals, as families, and as a congregation, we're okay. Doesn't mean there's not room for improvement. It doesn't mean that God's not going to chasten us when we get stupid and sinful. Actually, we get sinful first, and that makes us get stupid generally. But you understand what I'm saying. Christ does guide and guard and protect and lead us. He is our Savior. Now, in verse 19, it says that all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ, and that he's reconciled all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And that has to be understood of those that are in heaven, whether uh, the elect angels or the redeemed. Uh, the Bible's clear that not all will be saved. So if someone wants to take this verse 20 and try to make it a universal idea that everybody's going to heaven, um, that's not what's taught in the Bible. If you read Romans chapter 9, God is pleased to show his justice even in those who will be uh, in hell. And they will glorify God as examples of his justice. Others will glorify God as examples of his mercy. God has a plan that he's working out. But if anyone's going to be made right with God, it's going to be through Jesus Christ. It's when, like when John writes and says, uh, if any man sin, we have a propitiation, meaning a sacrifice that brings about reconciliation, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then John says he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for, all the, for the sins of the whole world. That means there's only, that doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved, again, because if you read your Bible, you know that the Bible doesn't teach that. But it means there's only one way to get right with God. God doesn't say, well, you know, as long as everybody tries, whatever religion they're following, it doesn't teach that in Scripture. Christ is the only propitiation for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. Use the illustration if you're on a ship that's sinking and there's one lifeboat. There might be people saying, oh, you know, don't go to that one. There's one on the other side. You need to go over there. They're lying. You won't be saved if you go there. There's only one lifeboat off this wrecked planet, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Savior, and he's the propitiation for our sins and for the sins of the world. He's the only sacrifice that brings about reconciliation. Now, so Paul goes on and talks about the personal application of these truths. He says to them in Colossae, you were who were once alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. No, it's the, Christ is the Savior. In the body of his flesh through death, that's how he did it, through his incarnation, through death, because he died for us. He took your sins away to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That's what he's done. You're justified. You have his righteousness, which is perfect, given to you. And he's working in you, purging out your sins. But this is a reference that in Christ you have complete acceptance before God. But then uh, Paul writes this, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast. Now some have said, ah, oh, see, you can lose your salvation. But how are you going to do that if Christ took away all your sins? Paul is saying that if you really are converted, you're going to persevere. Perseverance is taught in the Bible. The mark of true regeneration, that is, if you've really been born again, as I've said, the definition of eternal life is not temporary. You have eternal life. The mark of true regeneration is that you persevere in the faith. Perseverance doesn't save you, but if you are saved, you will persevere. Paul talked about this. Scripture talks about it. He says, he that has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Jude 24, we've talked about that before, that uh, he's able to save you and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory. So 
the idea of, does this teach you can lose your salvation? No, but it means if you're not sure where you stand, you better take heed and make sure you really truly come to Christ. You know, you might have been brought up in a religious house. You may have a lot of religious notions. That doesn't necessarily mean your heart's been changed. If you're not born again, that is, you, if you haven't really, I love the old Puritan phrase, if you haven't really closed with Christ, those who understand real estate and business understand what that means. To close means the covenant has been established. If you haven't really entered into covenant by fully trusting in Jesus Christ, you need to call upon him and ask for his mercy and grace and forgiveness. Um, you have to continue. And even for those who profess the faith, sometimes you know the devil comes along and says, you know, take it easy. You know, you've been kind of rough on yourself. You know, all that Bible reading and go trying to go to church every time the doors open. Come on, man, live. Take it easy, okay? Paul's saying you need to continue in the faith grounded and steadfast. You need to be where the words preach. You need to get your Bibles open in the home. You need to be praying. Paul's saying don't get lazy is what he's telling them. Why? And so that you're not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. You know, it's not the Holy Spirit that's encouraging you not to read your Bible. So you got to figure out, well, yeah, my Bible says, ooh, look, it's got dust on it. How'd that happen, okay? It's not that, well, you know, God, I did have one guy that got into the whole charismatic, you know, neo-apostolic thing, told me he didn't need to read the, told me he did not need to read the Bible anymore because he was getting it direct. And I told him, you're basically going crazy at this point. I said, you need to get your Bible open, man. Um, we need to read our Bibles. We need to persevere. Perseverance, we talk about, go, yeah, that's, that's true. It means you need to make sure that you're in Christ. Like Peter said, make your calling and election sure. You say you're called of God. You say you believe you're born again and that you're one of God's elect. That's wonderful. I hope it's true. Make it sure. It's got to be reflected in your life. And that means you're going to have to learn how to confess your sins because right now we're in this body of flesh and we still have corruption. We still struggle. John says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But again, the difference between a Christian and an unsaved person or a person that's not been born again, a Christian struggles with sin. The wicked are either indifferent to it or wallow. and They're indifferent to repentance, I should say, or they're wallowing in their sin. They're not interested in breaking with it. Christians, we need to break with our sins. And if it sounds like I'm getting preachy, look around where you are. Of course I am. Yeah, we're in church. I'm supposed to get preachy, okay, with myself first and then also with my brothers and sisters. <clears throat> um, it's been said, many, many a sinner has gone to hell from, by sitting in the pews. You know, and he's like, hey, I'm okay. Look, I'm in church. I got a Christian family. I got my you know, mom and dad are Christians. I guess I'm okay. You know, have you come to Christ? Are you trusting him? He's the head of the church. He's the savior. Just make sure of that. And this isn't to discourage you or to try to trouble your hearts and consciences. It's to let you know you've got a savior. We have a savior who will welcome you with open arms. Okay, Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, Paul then says, and this brings us to really down toward the last part here. He says, I, Paul, became a minister. And then verse 24, he makes an interesting statement. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. And then here's this really kind of strange statement. And fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. You read this, wait a minute. Was Paul trying to say that his suffering somehow added to the sufferings of Jesus? And the answer I will tell you from everything I know of the scriptures 
No, Paul's not saying that. So what is he saying? Well, if you think about it, if you remember in Luke chapter 24, and if you have your Bible, you can flip there real quick. We'll uh, begin wrapping this up here pretty quickly. In Luke chapter 24, Christ gave a commission. You know, in Matthew, we know the one, go ye into all the world, uh, make disciples of all the nations, um, or having gone, make disciples, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in Mark, is go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Well, there's a great commission given also in Luke, and it's Luke chapter 24 at verse 46. And it's a threefold commission. I've mentioned this before, but I'll remind you of it. Then he that is Jesus... Oh, by the way, let's look at verse 46 first, or, uh, or 45 rather. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. That's why we pray that pre before the sermons. And you should pray that before you read your Bible. Lord, open my understanding so I can really understand this the way you want me to understand it. That is in truth. And that's going to be grammatically, historically, but recognizing it in the context and all those things. Verse 46, then he said to them, thus it is written. Note how he, there's the apostles. These guys are going to go out and build the church. Christ refers them to scripture. Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary. And then the, there's three, that, that word necessary in the Greek has three complementary infinitives for you grammarians out there. It's necessary what? For Christ to suffer. Or it was necessary, yeah, for Christ to suffer, that's one. Secondly, to rise from the dead the third day. Absolutely necessary for our salvation. Christ had to die, and he had to rise again. He died, took away our sins. He rose from the dead because death had no claim on him except our sins that had been imputed to him. He took them all away, so death couldn't hold him any longer. So Jesus' resurrection is God's message to you that your sins really were taken away. Jesus is risen. That means you can be saved. He took away your sins. He's risen from the dead. He's not dead. He is alive. He doesn't need a replacement. He is the Savior. There's a third, though, infinitive, and that's in verse 47. And it's literally that repentance and remissions of sins to be preached. Infinitive is those two, two type verbs, okay? The preaching of the gospel is necessary. Jesus said it's necessary. Christ has to die, had to die. Christ spoke this after his resurrection. And rise again. And that repentance, that is turning from sin, and remission of sins, forgiveness of sins, is necessary to be preached, literally, in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. When Paul says that he's filling up the sufferings of Christ, he's talking about that third part. Christ suffered on the cross. Paul's not comparing any of the things that he's gone through with what Jesus did. Christ went to hell for you and for all of his people on the cross. Paul's not trying to put himself in that equation. But Paul knew the gospel has to be preached, and in this world there's a hostility against the word of God and against anyone that's really going to try to win people to Christ. And so Paul said, I rejoice in my sufferings. And if you look, at it, he says, I, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Jesus did everything necessary to save us. Paul was willing to do whatever is necessary to get the word out there. And he's not trying to take any glory to himself because, you know, he says elsewhere, 
God forbid that I should glory in, in, in anything except the cross of Christ. So Paul's just simply saying, whatever I have to go through, whatever I have gone through, to get the word to you guys, I'm happy about it. And people might have thought, wow, if they knew what Paul had gone through, they might have thought, has he gone crazy? Does he not really realize he got beat up, stoned, he was like left for dead a couple of times, actually, and it seems like every town he went into, he got you know, beat up and thrown into prison. He's happy about it? What is wrong with it? No, no, because Paul saw the fruit of that. He saw that God was the one doing that work, and the word was going out. Paul, he recognized Christ is being glorified. His people are getting saved. The church is getting uh, founded. And here we are 20 centuries later talking about it. Why? Because men like the apostle Paul, the other apostles, missionaries, Christian ministers, husbands, wives, children, stood for the cause of Christ, and they suffered for it. But the word kept going forth. And so Paul's talking about that. He's filling up the sufferings of Christ. Not that he's adding to Christ's atonement, but that what's necessary to get the word out, he's willing to do. And he's thrilled that God is using him to do that. You know, Paul was definitely, he thought uh, differently than we do. You know, more than just outside the box. It was counterintuitive is a, is a good word. You know, when you, uh, I know up in Seattle, you get some snow up there, I think. I've heard sometimes, or in that Olympia, I believe. You know, you got to learn. I remember trying to learn to drive in the snow, and it was like you got to be counterintuitive. You know, I was from the San Joaquin Valley. You hit a patch of mud. You, well, you turn a certain way, but you got to learn. Like you might feel like turning this, you got to lean out of it or into it. Different things you have to do. Paul understood the progress of the gospel. As far as the flesh is concerned, it's going to be counterintuitive. We've got to be willing to put ourselves on the line. Look at all the missionaries. Look at all the Christian brothers and sisters that were willing to lay down their lives for the cause of Christ. And here we are today, able to hear God's word in relative security and peace, sitting in a nice building with padded pews. Praise God. But we've had so many men, women, and children. Uh, and I do mention children because there have been children put to death for professing Christ. So young people don't think you're exempt from this. But they stood up for the Lord Jesus because they knew he had died and risen for them. So Paul is aware of this. He's happy. He said he wants to get this mystery out. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations but now has been revealed to his saints. He said, it's, note that <coughs> mystery isn't something that's still secret. It's revealed. It's a revealed truth uh, to God's holy ones, his saints, his people. To them God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you. Now that can also be understood because it's plural, the word you there. Christ among you. He wanted these Gentile believers to know the mystery that no one could figure out because it looked like the Jews were the exclusive worshipers of Jehovah, of Yahweh, of the Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And now Christ is risen, <coughs> given the, the great commission to his church. The gates have been blown wide open and now the word's going out to every nation under heaven. Paul said, this is an amazing thing. Christ in you or Christ among you. The hope of glory that, that the Gentiles can trust in Jesus. He said, him we preach. Note that. He doesn't say I preach you know, anything other than Jesus. Him we preach. We proclaim Jesus. Warning every man. That's the repentance aspect, I believe. And teaching every man in all wisdom. That we may present every man perfect in Christ. That is complete in Jesus when they come to saving faith. To this end I also labor. And I love this last phrase. Striving. Note, according to what? According to his working, 
which works in me mightily. Note that Paul knew where the power came from. Paul's not saying, oh, I'm such a great guy, or I'm so powerful. He says, no, I work, I strive according to his working, which works in me mightily. The Colossians were a testimony to that as they received his word, and they knew Paul had preached fearlessly. We need to be fearless in our testimony for Christ, because it's not your power or strength, and if it is, get off of that. Go to God. Say, Lord, help me to be a good witness for you, and help me to show your love to others, whether always in word and in good deed. Lord, help me to, to really back up what I profess with my actions. But Lord, wouldn't it be wonderful? I mean, some of you know this. Wouldn't it be wonderful to say, you know, I, I talked to my friend or my neighbor, and the Lord used that. They, they got interested. They started listening to the gospel. I was able to share with them. They came to saving faith in Jesus. And it's not because I did anything, but the Lord was pleased to use me. What a privilege it is to know you're going to have a brother or sister or friend in heaven because God used you to talk to them about Jesus. That's why it's important, parents, tell your children the gospel. You know, you don't want to go to heaven without your children. You know, you want to talk to them about the Lord. If you are a parent and have children that profess faith, you can thank God. And others you're still praying for, maybe. But trust in the Lord. So Paul wrote this, we're just in chapter 1. But he wanted them to know it really is all about Jesus. Him we preach. I love that. Uh, let's ask God to help us keep focused and do the same. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We pray that you would seal your word to our hearts. Cause it to take deep root and to bring forth good fruit for your glory and for the edification of us and our brothers and sisters and your church. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the head of your church. And we thank you, Lord, that we can come to you at all times. And you are our high priest. You do hear our prayers. You do intercede for us before the Father according to your knowledge of what we need. And we thank you so much that you hear our prayers. And Lord, teach us, we pray, to learn to pray the right things and to trust in you. Give us that strength and grace. And Lord, whatever sufferings we have to endure for the cause of your kingdom, Give us grace to do so and help us not to be cowards, but to stand for you and to speak good words to those we come in contact with and to tell them of your love. And we pray that you'd go before us and prepare their hearts even now. But as you give us opportunity to share the gospel in our families, in our neighborhood, in our uh, society, in our community, and even in your church, Lord, Help us to do so faithfully, and we'll give you all the glory and all the praise, Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for who you are. And Father, we thank you for your Son and for your gift of giving him to us. So help us, we pray. And Father, we ask this in Jesus Christ's name.